Okay, um, hello everyone, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to uh, Professor Raymond Tallis. Ray is a philosopher, poet, novelist, cultural critic, and a retired medical physician and a clinical neuroscientist, and he worked for the NHS for years. He's also an NHS activist, I guess. Very much so, yeah. 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 Um, uh, Ray's a publication this as long as you are, so I'm just going to give you some highlights of the, the relevant books. Uh, Aping Mankind, 2011, The One I Like, The Black Mirror, uh, Michelangelo's Finger, In Defense of Wonder. Uh, his most recent big book, I think, is of Time and Lamentation, where he writes about time. And he just uh, had a text published called uh, Lulos. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick. I have to say, I've had the time of my life so far, and now it's all going wrong, because I've got to stand up and talk. But I've really enjoyed the talks, both individually and the fact that they're so different. So it's been great fun, I say, until this, this moment. And of course, I've got what's colloquially known as the graveyard shift. Uh, it's, you, it's said that a lecturer is someone who can pull off the miracle of talking in other people's sleep. And it seems to me the graveyard shift is the one where you're most likely to achieve it. Now, um, Philip Larkin also said that people can stand poetry readings if they know how long they can, they're going to last for. So I'm going to tell you, basically, I discussed it basically with Patrick, and my talk is just under 40 minutes, so you know when land's in sight, so keep an eye on your watchers. Um, it's, I guess, philosophically quite tough, um, but I hope it'll be enjoyable-ish. So here we are, embodied subjects and objects in the weighty sense. We human beings are neither apes nor angels, neither mere organisms nor disembodied spirits passing through nature from a prenatal to a post-mortem eternity. Nor are we the two combined in percentages to be determined by our propensity to romanticism or realism about humanity. No, we are embodied subjects, and that's what I want to explore in today's talk. Now, although what I will say has been greatly influenced by reading this great character, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, at an impressional age, I won't be following the outlines of his thought. And to some extent, this is because my present aim is less an endeavour to correct the Cartesian error of seeing us as ghosts in machines, or the materialist view of seeing ourselves as physiological machines, less that than an exploration, even a celebration, of the complexity of the relationship we have to our bodies, and the implication of this for our everyday ontology of objects. And there is another reason. Jan Halleck, whom you, whom, uh, you may have heard about, uh, is a serious scholar of, of Merleau-Ponty, <coughs> and he knew, knows much more about him than I do, and I would add that what I have to say is influenced by Jan. He unfortunately couldn't come today um, because of a bereavement. So I'm going to avoid uh, following in the footsteps of Merleau-Ponty. Now, we are, of course, inseparable from our bodies, that is the force of the description of us as embodied subjects. Body and person are like the recto and verso of a sheet of paper, at least in the sense that you cannot have the one without the other, though there are other senses in which this analogy fails dismally. Our embodiment, of course, has been a source of grief for many body-hating philosophers, such as Plato, for whom it constitutes a kind of ontological slumming. The body and its sense experiences are an obstacle to our accessing truth, we're told, and its appetites distract us from the pursuit of wisdom. Hatred of the body is perhaps a response to something 
that's expressed succinctly by Roger Scruton. The metaphysical predicament of the human being in the deep clash contained in the words, I am, the one affirming transcendence and the other denying it. But more precisely, the vexed relationship is between the I of the subject and the it of the body. Or more precisely, between the I am of Raymond Tallis and the it is of his body. In short, between am and is. We are in transcendental subjects, inseparable from inescapable empirical predicates realized in our organic being. As Jan Patochka put it, the way from the transcendental subject to humans leads through corporeity. But this is not a fall from platonic, platonic grace, for the body is the necessary condition of the situatedness of our existence, of our being in the world, enmeshed in a multiplicity of relations. Without such situatedness, our lives would have no agenda, even less a narrative. As Patochka said, paraphrasing Husserl, humans are integrated into the world by virtue of their corporeity. Indeed, their corporeity is the condition of their having a world. My body is that in virtue of which I do not merely have a point of view or a blob of view, but I am a point of view or a blob of view, according to which I am not only at the centre, but also at the edge of things, a small creature in a large world that I in part constitute. So let's examine the M of embodiment through some of the ways in, we both, in which we both are our bodies and our distance from them. And these are lists on the slide, and I'll visit them in turn. <coughs> this is an obvious sense in which I am my body. I am Raymond Tallis is not the lifelong iteration of a ghost. The impersonal being of my organic body permits my first-person being, and consequently also the second and third-person being, myself as a you or myself as a he, that first-person being sustains. At the most fundamental level, I am, in a primordial sense, where my body is. If you want to point to Raymond Tallis, you point to his body. He is in Manchester because this item in trousers is in Manchester. There are, of course, many other modes of being here, but this is the necessary precondition of other ways of being here. My body supplies the anchor of the coordinates of movement. Head to toe supplies the vertical axis, left to right the horizontal axis, and from back to front the axis of depth. If my body changes its hair, I change my hair. If it moves, I move. More precisely, if I move it, I move, though there is no clear-cut separation, or even hierarchy, of the mover and the moved. By contrast, when I move an extracorporeal object, such as a chair, it is clear which is the agent and which is the patient. So our body is the presupposed platform for actions and for the reception of a perceived world. In summary, it is the primary viewpoint on and the fundamental point d'appui to the world, however much absence of mind permits me virtual occupancy of any number and any kinds of elsewhere. My body, then, is the condition of the possibility of I. Our flesh surrounds us with its own decisions, the great English metaphysical poet Philip Larkin wrote. More than surrounded, we are invaded by those decisions. A rising tide of illness leads to the final engulfment as the body closes over itself, and the eye drowns in an it 
whose posthumous fate, that's a late uh, portrait of me, whose posthumous fate, <laughs> thankfully, has nothing to do with us. Now, there's nothing in what I've said so far that would justify a report to the Royal Society. But now things get a little more difficult. As, as we try to determine the extent to which I am my body boils down, boils down to a banal statement of the identity of something with itself. I am my body does not translate into I is my body, or my body is my body, or this body is this body. One way of grasping the difference between am and is identity is to observe that my life story is not the summed material or biological history of my body. Indeed, my body, unlike my life, has no intrinsic narrative. Of course, I can tease out threads of a story, a timeline of my serum potassium, or a cardiac tracing. But these banal tales are not self-teasing or self-telling and are intrinsically meaningless. I have a CV, while my body's V is without a C. It is an existence that unfolds rather than a life that is led. I and my body unfold in ways that are identical and yet divergent. One marker of the gap between the it and my body and the I that is me is the possessive pronoun in the term my body. There is a complex relationship of ownership between me and it, something to which we could devote an entire talk. But that has individual, social, cultural and political dimensions. One particularly striking aspect is my right to donate parts of my body to others after I die. I am a potentially a donor kebab or a smorgasbord of benefactions. Of course, my possession of my body is fundamentally different from my possession of other objects. Unlike other possessions, my body is not something I acquire during my life or dispose of at will. It is a congenital possession, as my nakedness is my birthday suit, and then it is the necessary condition of all other ownership, as well as that which necessitates my having possessions. Ownership can slip into objectification, where my body, or more often part of it, is experienced as an object. First, in my own gaze, in the gaze of others, or in my own gaze, tinted by the imagined gaze of others. The body, as visible object, underwrites that strange possession which I call my appearance, something that is susceptible to being judged as beautiful, ugly, slim, fat, old, young, or more elusively as impressive or unimpressive, reassuring or unnerving. This is, <coughs> this is one of the many places where the outlines of the body as object melt into the person as subject, and physical appearance becomes the figure one cuts, indeed the beginning of a narrative as to how I appear in the eyes of others. There is a complex relationship between my sense of myself and my judgment of my material presence, and what is visible to my own and other senses. Being, for example, ashamed of my bodily appearance combines subjectivity and objectivity, in which I reject something that is mine because it is mine. We can endeavour to recover control of our appearance through the many ways we transform it. Makeup, tribal markings, tattoos, hairstyles, jewellery, costumes, uniforms are some of the ways we may appropriate our own appearance to make it for, work for us rather than against us, to express ourselves in a way that, as long as it is intelligible, must be collective rather than individual signifying an allegiance, a status, an office, an origin, to attract, dominate, or simply rise above the helplessness of visibility.
Getting our appearance to work for us is a manifestation of another way in which our relationship to, and hence distance from, our body is elaborated. Namely, making it the primary agent of our agency, a kind of meta-agent. Our bodies, most prodigiously, are grasping, grubbing, groping, cupping, catching, pulling, pushing, squeezing, fingering, dabbing, caressing, scratching, waving, threading, twisting hands are the immediate agents of our agency. And this is a topic for another talk. I devoted uh, many hundreds of pages to the hand and its relationship and its quasi-primordial upstream tool-like nature. There is, in many of the actions, there is no explicit distance, of course, between our doing and the flesh with which we do it. We stand, simply stand up or walk, rather than saying doing standing up or walking with legs. We do not usually utilize our body as if it were a tool. Though, as we shall see, ordinary activity may be associated with tool-like employment of parts of our body. Even so, a gap can appear when my body fails. A paralyzed arm can become a dead weight which I lift with my other arm. The interaction between the use of my body as the primary or upstream agent of my agency and my awareness of my own appearance reaches extraordinary levels of complexity when I use my appearance, my visible appearance, as a tool of communication. Even in the case of the most primitive gestures, such as pointing or waving, I transform what is visible to others of my body into a source of meant meaning that depends on my sense, of your sense, of the sense I'm trying to make through my movements. These relationships highlight the gap between, on the one hand, being our body, and on the other, encountering it as something other than ourselves. This is most pronounced when our bodies are objects of factual knowledge. There are many things that I, and indeed others, know about it. Indeed, we have an increasingly fact-backed relationship to our body, which opens up ever greater distances between me and the flesh in which I am embodied. Many such facts, though ultimately checkable against experience, lie beyond experience, being tethered to no particular sense. Facts neither glitter, hum, nor smell. Our knowledge of our body is a post-personal awareness of the pre-personal organism that makes our personal existence possible. Knowledge is generated collaboratively and communicated within and between epistemic communities and is available for shared application. It enables us to take a less egocentric, indeed less anthropocentric, cognitive stance to our own flesh. We see it as a site of biological, chemical, physical processes that, far from being unique to ourselves, are shared with other humans, other species, even other material objects, as in the case of the tensile strength of my tendons or the viscosity of my blood. Even where I have such knowledge about my own body, it remains impersonal located in the space between the knowing eye and the object of its knowledge, my flesh that is anyone's flesh. Our body as a body of knowledge is ownerless, a site of processes that get on with themselves as undauntedly as what is happening in the trees or in the moon. Which brings us naturally to another relationship, another aspect of the distance between us and our bodies, our caring for. Of course, animals care for their bodies, Indeed, the greater part of their lives may be described as body care. But in humans, that care is utterly transformed. Taking tablets that dissolve into the darkness of the body to lower one's blood pressure, 
to prevent strokes and heart attacks is one of the many ways that the embodied subject cares for itself, that the person looks after the organism that is his or her body, under the cognitive direction of the community of minds. Exercising one's body in order to postpone its decline may seem less exotic, but it involves no less complex a relationship to one's flesh, including envisaging in very general terms its possible state at an unspecified future. I've already noted that the story of my body, cyclical recurrent events, circulation of the blood, beating the heart, is not the story of my life. What it is like to be Raymond Tallis is not the same as what it is like to be Raymond Tallis's body. Indeed, there cannot be a what it is like to be such a thing, even where the thing in question is a living organism. What it is like to be Raymond Tallis is not a stable, distinctive state, even less that of a thing. Speaking for a moment from the standpoint of Raymond Tallis, there are great tracks within his body that are simply unknown to him. We could put this another way. The majority of Raymond Tallis's carnal being is silent for most of the time, and some of it for all of the time. The blush of awareness is patchy and intermittently distributed. What's more, the body is not pre present to the person or experienced by the, by the person at the scale of most of the activity going on in the body, namely cellular activity. None of that is accessible to me. There's no way I could be aware of or experience the Krebs cycle, essential for the life of my cells. Wittgenstein's famous observation, excuse me a moment, that if a line could speak, we would not understand it, must be even more applicable to the body. If my body could speak, I could not understand it. This is the other side of, of something noted just now, that much of the factual truth of the body is not, excuse me a moment, I'll go back. Much of the uh, factual truth of the body is not translatable into lived, ex livable experience, something that is obvious at the microscopic scale, but is equally true at the level of items that could be perceived unaided. That this is going on in my, in my body does not automatically translate into this is going on in me. To return to an earlier point, almost by definition, facts have an impersonal residue. They belong to the collective. Experience may check factual claims, but knowns both fall short of experiences, they are the skeleton of types of experiences, and exceed those experiences because they have a scope that experiences could not fill. The essential point is this. There is a gulf between I am and it is. Even when the I that am is Raymond Tallis and the it that is is Raymond Tallis's body. Inside his skin is terror largely incognito. Subcutaneous reality comes to his attention for the most part only when it's diseased. <clears throat> It's clear then that being Raymond Tallis is not to be conflated with what it is like to be Raymond Tallis's body, or even Raymond Tallis's brain. There's nothing in his body that corresponds to, or is identical with, what it's like to be the person Raymond Tallis. What it's like to me, to be me, is not what it's like to be a certain brain, or a certain activity of that brain. Indeed, one can say, 
the brain is essentially subjectless. So I'm neither part of my body nor the whole of my body, but at the same time I'm inseparable from it and individuated by it. So it's time to confront the fundamental tension at the heart of embodiment. What is it? It's that finding an am of a person in an is of a body, or getting an I out of an it, or an I am out of it is. So, the I in question is Raymond Tallis, and it is Raymond Tallis's body. And the I in question is Raymond Tallis, and the it is Raymond Tallis's body. The distance between the two is highlighted by the various complex two-place relationships that, we dis that I discussed at the beginning of the talk. Ownership, caring, using, suffering, and above all, knowing. Of course, Raymond Tallis is represented to some extent in both sides of the two-place relationship. The body I possess, care for, use, suffer, and so on, is my body. Nevertheless, the distance underlines the non or incomplete ident identity between me and the flesh of which I'm made. So we have a problem. But perhaps we need to challenge... A moment. We need to challenge the way the problem is framed. The seeming impossibility of getting an am out of an it, the person out of the body, results from seeing the body as being essentially an it. But if we treat the human body as an object like any other, then indeed we shall find it metaphysically stony ground for an eye to take root in. Now I want to argue that the no-person, impersonal reality of objects is inseparably connected with the first-person reality of subjects. Something that sounds suspiciously Kantian, though it needn't be. Preaching out in this opens up the possibility of turning the problem on its head by arguing that far from am having to grow in it, I in the flesh, a fully-fledged notion of it is built into the sense of am. To understand this, we need to dig deeper into the unique ontological standing of the living and lived body. Yes, it is an object, but not an object like any other. It has a special place in our world, and it is, it is indeed that in virtue of which we have a world. But it is more. It is that in virtue of which we have the concept of an object that is independent of ourselves, that, that, of an object that has an in itself that is more than what it is for others, for us, more than what we experience of it. When this is appreciated, it's possible to transform the problem of the I and the it by arguing that far from having an am having to grow in an it, a fully-fledged notion of it is built into the sense of am. Well, that's too strong. I and it are codependent. Or if that sounds a little Kantian, we can be more specific. The intuition of a reality of an object that lies beyond any actual experience, the reality of an object in self that's not reducible to experiences, an object such as this chair, begins with our relationship to our own body. It's our own status as embodied subjects that gives us the sense of objects in the weighty sense, to use the term introduced by P.F. Strawson.
that is to say, of objects that are of items that are independently existing objects forming a unified spatio-temporal system. These are objects, unlike Barkelian objects, that can continue to exist when they're not perceived. The sense of it arises out of living the gap between the living body and the body that is lived by the subject. I'll explain that a bit further. I've arrived at a crucial point in the argument, that it is in virtue of being and yet not being our organic body, of being identified with and yet quasi-externally related to our body, an object that we only incompletely or patchily or intermittently colonise with their awareness and agency, that we develop a sense of objects in their full otherness, a sense of the opaque it that forms the substance of the world. If that seems too extreme, and to be at odds with the apparent fact that it, the material universe, precedes am, we could argue that am and is, the sense that I, the person, am, and it, the body, is, grow in parallel by a dialectical process. Our lived body is our experience of something that transcends experience. We live something that we can only in incompletely experience. I recognise these are bold and rather puzzling claims, so I want to begin with something relatively straightforward. My experience of my hand. When I look at the back of my hand, I see an object that I know. But an object that I know from immediate experience has parts that lie beyond what I see. Such parts, for example, belong to its undersurface and to its interior. I can, for example, feel my currently invisible palm through the pressure on its flesh of the table on which it is resting. I can, moreover, directly experience its interior, courtesy of a variety of sensations such as its weight and warmth, sometimes through localised experiences such as pain. These testify to an in here, hidden from the vision that discloses the hand as out there, and indeed hidden from everyone else. You cannot sense my pain, just as I cannot sense yours. It's worth reflecting on this a bit further before proceeding to larger claims. When I directly feel the hand that I'm also looking at, I am in receipt of parallel streams of experience, which are each exposed by the other, as being incomplete. The warmth of my hand betrays that there is more to my hand than I can see, and the visual appearance of my hand, for example the shadows cast on my skin by my veins, discloses that there is more to it than I can feel. We thus have the cross-sensory equivalent of the depth perception that is afforded by binocular vision. In this case, two sensory modalities as opposed to two eyes. The object perceived in two ways simultaneously has a depth that reveals it as being more than is provided by a single sense. Not so fast, you might say. You may be inclined quite reasonably to say, so what? When I pick up and examine a cup, I can feel the tactile properties that I can't see, such as the coolness of the porcelain, and see visual appearances, for example, the shadows cast by my fingers, to which there corresponds no tactile sensation. So what's special about the body? 
we need to clarify what it is about the experience of our own bodily parts, as opposed to extracorporeal items such as cups, is unique. Well, whereas gripping and looking at a cup give different experience of it, indicating that each sensory modality yields an experience of something that is more than that experience, the different senses in this instance do not have such a fundamentally different angle of approach, as is the case with the experiences of my body. There's nothing that corresponds to the double aspect of the external appearance of my hand revealed from without, plus the from within of my hand apprehended, apprehended through its warmth or weight or feeling of discomfort. When I observe the colour of my dorsal veins on the back of my hand, I can see that I am seeing something that cannot be felt. And when I am feeling the warmth of my hand, I am aware that I am conscious of something that lies beyond my, or come to that, anyone else's gaze. The dissociation between a distance receptor such as vision and the immediate awareness arising out of the hand's sensation of itself is particularly evident when my hand is in action. I can feel but cannot see the effort in the grip. What's more, you cannot feel the effort in my grip, though you may infer it from what you see. Vision, which locates the object as out there, is complemented by proprioceptive awareness that illuminates the in-here of the bodily object that is not accessible to anyone else. I suffer my body in a way you cannot. The in-hereness of bodily proprioception and other immediate senses, such as a feeling of warmth or pain, is underlined by their inescapability. For while seeing my body can be interrupted by closing my eyes, feeling it, particularly when it is in pain, cannot be extinguished in this way. That's why tactile and proprioceptive experience locates my body firmly in my subjectivity, though at the same time on the edge of objectivity. While seeing it, locates it at a distance from subjectivity. This double status lies at the root of the two-place relationships we discussed at the beginning of the talk, as when I referred to our bodies or parts of them as if they were possessions. My hand, my face, my body. I'm at both ends of the relationship. The key point is that these two fundamentally different modes of access reveal the ontological, ontological depth in my body as object, as in itself. I have the sense of being my body as a whole, reinforced as I move it as a whole, head, arms, legs and spleen, however any part of my body is illuminated from within and without by my awareness of it. I therefore directly experience my body as an object transcending what I experience of it. We could summarize the story in a catchphrase. Epistemic stereopsis yields ontological depth. This intuition of something beyond and independent of my experience is reinforced in a multitude of ways. I can see the outside, upper side of my hand, but also feel it from within when it's placed out of range of vision. For example, the pressure of my palm faced on the surface. Or I can look in the mirror and see my face but cannot see the moisture that I can feel in my closed mouth, or the slight ache on the back of my neck, or the ringing in my ears. I thus have an image of something that goes beyond images, experiencing the going beyond experience 
of my experiences. That body, in virtue of being both an object of external perception and experience from within, has the ontological depth of a being that is more than just the sum total of my own or indeed others' experiences of it. This dual relationship to our body is the existential or lived root of our awareness of extracorporeal material things, Strawson's objects in the weighty sense, that are both capable of being perceived and of existing unperceived. Those of you who are still conscious may wish to raise several objections to this argument, but I want to deal with the most pressing. Firstly, the knowledge from within argument may not withstand Cartesian doubt. How do I know there really are objects in the external world? How do I know? I can be certain, Descartes might argue, only that I am a thinking being, or that <coughs> there are thoughts happening. Not that I am an embodied thinking being. This was countered by Strawson, who pointed out in individuals that identity depends on unique occupancy of a location of space. It's not possible to confine the I that I am to thoughts or indeed perceptions because they do not occupy space. If I have an identity, in short is if I is to have a reference and I am to have token experiences, and token thoughts, then I must be embodied as a basis for individuation. The I, the subject, am requires that it, the body, is. No entity could be a bundle of perceptions or thoughts untokenized. And I can, of course, be deceived that I am. And this is equally true, by the way, the very sense organs by which I perceive the world. They too must be located in the body, itself localized in space and time, if experience is to have a particular content, so that I see this rather than that. As an individual who experiences the world from a viewpoint, I cannot be mistaken that my body exists. It is what philosophers have called a hinge commitment. A coherent viewpoint, unified across seemingly spatially localized and spatially separate sources of sense experience, them localized within which, themselves localized within which that which they perceive is inconceivable without a spatially localized and space-occupying body. That body must in turn be conceived as continuing as a kind of whole notwithstanding the patchiness and intermittent nature of my experience of it, or indeed any given part of it. The continuity, therefore, is lived, affirmed, in ensuring the felt needs and sustained related actions that subsume my body in different ways. Certainty, therefore, extends beyond the Cartesian limits to encompass at least one type or one material object, the bodies of conscious human beings the body that I am. I could not be mistaken that I am a body. But can this certainty be extended to non-bodily objects such as sticks and stones and mountains, which we access, access through perceptions other than them? Are they too real? Yes. For if my body with its interacting parts were real, but the things it acted upon were merely fictions or posits, there would be a lopsided, indeed one-sided coupling between a real physical body and a world of fictional items. In short, the reality of extracorporeal objects is intimately bound up with the reality of the living body. I've already mentioned the reciprocity between the hand that touches and the object touched by it. 
but there is something that takes a sense of reality beyond a passively received evidence. The fact that interaction is associated with effort, pain, resistance, that reach into the heart of our sense of ourself and what we are. What's most importantly granted to me through my embodiment, or embodiment, is what we might call existential reassurance. That the world is populated with objects that exist in themselves and are more than my or anyone else's experiences of them. In virtue of the I am that grows in and haunts and appropriates and distances itself from this body, I have a sense of an it is applicable to my body and thence to the material objects beyond my body. The combination of first person being or amming my body and experiencing it as an object most strikingly when I look at myself in a mirror, awakens a sense of the it is in itself of the world that surrounds me. Take heart, lantern side. In short, we could not intuit objects on the basis of our experiences if we were not ourselves identified with at least one object, our body, that transcend our experiences. We would have to settle for objects as Quine described them, as merely theoretical posits. As, as Quine said, considered relative to the irritations at our sensory surfaces, he thinks the source of our knowledge, the physical objects we believe in are posits. Statements of their existence are far in excess of any available data, past, present, and future. They are on a comparable epistemological footing with Homer's gods. Reference to the body of the embodied subject which is both the paradigm of an object that transcends experience and also the viewpoint that underpins particular experiences of being the organic substrate that makes experiences possible does not fully address Kant's problem of understanding how knowledge can transcend the chaos of experience and access stable objects set out in unitary space and time, but neither does Kant's solution. Even so, the body as lived transcendence gives warrant to our intuition of other out-of-body objects transcending the experiences. Unlike Kant's transcendental subject, the body, or the embodied subject, is located in space and time and is under one aspect an object among, among objects. In this more democratic ontology, the lived body bumps up against other objects. It experiences modes of reciprocity, such as it's pushed by the things it pushes against. As I press a solid object, it presses me to the point sometimes of leaving the marks of its pressure on my body. The embodied subject falls as other objects do under the influence of gravity. Finally, it is visible, tangible, audible to other embodied subjects or indeed to other sentient creatures. The it of the body cannot be entirely dissolved into the eye of the person. We may conjecture that as the developing infant discovers his own body as something he is and is not, so he deepens his sense of an objective world that transcends his experience of it and has a reality that is both public, being exposed to any number of others, and is intrinsic to it and hence to be discovered. Of course, the infant's co-discovery of I and it is not a single-handed achievement. It is inseparable from awareness of a world that is in keeping of others. We are born, as Patochka said, in others' arms. Just as the I grows in a multi-layered matrix of we, upheld by the use of special others. 
Thus does that which is have its existence affirmed and become it. There's no it without an eye, just as no opacity without vision. The it of objective view may seem falsely to be epistemically superior, or at least prior, to the existential experience of our body. As a result, the facts about our human being, understood as the truths of the human organism, seem to marginalise our first-person I-truths. This is how we come to think that the personal I am cannot seem to find a foothold in the no-personal places of body and brain. The brain is subjectless. We can, have, can and indeed should turn this on its head and note that it is, is rooted in the experience of being a body only incompletely experienced as a result of which the sense of I am is bounded by that which is not. There's no third-person world without a first-person one. The latter is necessary to turn is into is in inverted commas, or is in itself, for the experience of objects in the weighty sense. Neither, however, is more fundamental than the other. This view, which leans neither to idealism nor materialism, coincides with the view expressed by Merleau Ponty that the very idea of the ontological dimension of objects must be traced back to the context of the constitution of the object in our bodily experience. Quoted in a wonderful paper by Jan Halleck, who, alas, is not able to be with us. Very close to the end. And I want to end by revisiting and indeed revising the original metaphor of the body and subject, of the embodied subject being like the recto and verso of a sheet of paper. They are indeed inseparable, like the two sides of paper. But, as we've seen, the living body, the body that lived, and the life of the subject are divergent. The relationships between the eye of the subject and the it of the body may mark different dimensions of the slippage between them. These then are some thoughts about humans when they are seen truly as embodied subjects, rather than as mere organisms, or worse still, spirits. I shall be content if I persuaded you to see that persons as organisms, by, is to by, persuade you that to see persons as organisms is to bypass most of what is interesting and distinctive about us. And if I've reminded you what a strange business it is being a body, being and not being it, being an oddly shaped, largely fluid-filled object, like the one that's talking to you now, that for the most part gets on with its own business without requiring or even consulting us, then I will have done my business. It is courtesy of being this object in our own way that we live lives that have biographies subtended at many angles to the organic processes that made them possible, that we have human lives. So, thank you for your attention or at least the courtesy of simulating it. Thank you. <laughs>